0: You're listening to Atomic Moms, a modern parenting podcast about the joys and complexities of caring for our children and ourselves. I'm L.A. Noss, and since 2014, we've been celebrating and commiserating with world-class experts, best-selling authors, and parents around the world. It's so nice to be back in the saddle again Hello everyone. I am in Colorado now. I'm sure I'll fill you in soon on our recent travels and family upheavals. And I know that everyone is going through so much right now, especially transitioning into fall and back to school, however that may look. I am so grateful to have a very special guest back with us today, Dr. Tina Payne Bryson. She did an episode with me in my podcast studio in Los Angeles. I released it in January and it was the one of the most listened to episodes ever. It spread like crazy. Um, I had commenters and people emailing me that they listened to it multiple times. So after this episode, hit up our website dot where you will find our podcast pairing with our first episode with Tina. Um, but at the end of that conversation, which was really hard for both of us to stop uh, sharing. Like we had never met in person before, but it felt like we were friends and so simpatico in so many ways. And she said, Ellie, I've got a book coming out in September. Like, can we talk about it then? And I said, absolutely. And it felt like that would be so far away, you know, like nine months feels like a long time. And now reflecting back on when we made this date, so much in the world has changed and i am so grateful that we already had this in the books so listeners if you are unfamiliar with tina oh her work is so Pivotal, and you've definitely heard other parents speak about it. She is the co-author with Dan Siegel of two New York Times bestsellers, The Whole Brain Child and No Drama Discipline, as well as The Yes Brain and The Power of Showing Up and the forthcoming book that we're talking about today, Bottom Line for Baby. She's the founder and executive director of the Center for Connection, a multidisciplinary clinical practice in Southern California. And the most important part of her bio is that she's a mom to her three boys Tina, before we get into the book and before we get into my family issues, that I'm going to just lean on your PhD for, what has it been like this pandemic summer with your three boys?
1: You know what? It's been roller coastery. I think that's like (laughs) my favorite word right now. You know, honestly, overall in general, um, it's been a gift. My eldest Mm. is uh, a junior in college right now, just left to go back to Texas. And that's a whole other thing to send your child to another state where you know developmentally he can't help but be with crowds of people um, where I have no control. But he was home and my 17-year-old and 14-year-old, they're all really driven to be with peers right now. That's the way it's supposed Mm. to be. Um, But because they couldn't do that, they had to be home. So it's sort of like, I feel like it's like the last whiff of this concentrated family time. And I really delighted in it. Now that said, it's not all lovely all the time. I mean, they are back on the newborn feeding schedule. They eat every two to three hours. And I feel like I cook 7,000 times a day. You know, it's a lot of togetherness. And, um, there are days where I feel like I'm on it. Like I've got dinner planned. I've got what needs to go in the dinner, like in the refrigerator. We know we're going to play games or watch a movie that night. And I'm, I'm productive. It's a great day. And then the next day I can't figure out, I can't answer one email. I can't, Mm -hmm. I feel like I can't function just in daily kinds of things because the world is heavy right now. And because of my job, people reach out to me to support them and schools and all of that so sometimes the and because I'm a big feeler the weight of that darkness and I was telling you right before we hit record like I just like it a lot when people are just nice and kind and there's just not a lot of that happening in a in a public way right now and there's a lot of that happening on streets and lots of people serving each other in beautiful ways too but sometimes the heaviness of the state of the world right now and the unpredictability. Um, feels really daunting and heavy. So roller coastery, mostly a gift though. What about you?
0: Well, I saw at the beginning of the pandemic, I, I was trying to figure out the instant pot and I was asking <laughs> followers, on Instagram, like, am I doing this right? Because it was like a facial steam situation happening. And then I saw on your Instagram that you were also trying to figure out the Instapot. Did did you give up or did you figure it out? I figured it out, but I don't know. It doesn't feel that much
1: easier. Honestly, I don't know that it's going to be, I love my Crock-Pot. I'm a big Crock-Pot fan. Okay. I feel like, like, okay, everyone's like, oh, the eggs are the easiest. Actually, the one thing that does, I think make it super easy is corn on the cob. I think that's like a super great way to use it. But I boiled like a bunch of eggs and you have to wait so long for that thing to heat up. It's almost like an instant yeah. once you wait 30 minutes. Like I couldn't have <laughs> So I don't know. I, I I'm not a fangirl yet. I'm still struggling. What about you? Did you figure it out or did you like
0: No Oh my God, my college roommates were laughing at me so hard because they were like, This is your George Foreman grill, like two <laughs> <I was> <laughs> <laughs> I I have just never figured out the food aspect. That has definitely been one of the most challenging parts of the pandemic. Uh, like your son's, yeah. it's been feeding every two hours, especially with distance learning. It was snack time all the time. Uh, it was like my daughter who is six would put you know, her kindergarten class on mute and be like, mom, I need a snack. <laughs> and I finally wrote a schedule where it was like, no, you get a snack at this time and that's it. Yeah. And then we we're going to have lunch. And then, but at the beginning, I felt like I was just treading water and I couldn't believe how many dishes there were. We just didn't have a system set up for this right. new bizarre life. And now they only seem to want to eat cheese and bread. And- it's horrible. That's okay, and I'll I, w- that'll be the next step. We're, we're we're settling in in Colorado, and I plan to get their <laughs> nutritional it's fine. aspects figured out. And
1: uh, yeah, it'll soon. happen when it happens. I love. There was a New York Times parenting article. I think just a few months into quarantine that said their daughter had eaten like three hundred quesadillas or something like that, and I was like, yes, this is still like three 300- hundred. Quesadilla parenting time. It just is. I've eaten a ton of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. I love PB and J and make it easy. Too. And and you know, actually one idea, and I should do this because I was telling you earlier, I don't really have an office in my house. I'm in my son's bedroom that I kind of semi-converted mm-hmm. right it now. But so good. um but I'm typically like at the kitchen counter, like on the bar stools and if I did like a time-lapse where I sped up, it would look like I had like just constant someone walking through the kitchen and kind of meandering and standing in the pantry or in front of the fridge most of the time. But I did see someone that said, like create a snack allotment. Like your kid almost gets like a snack allotment for the day. Like you get a little tray and you put in Mm -hmm. like all the snacks they get for the day and they can eat them whenever they want. But I wouldn't really follow through with that because they're growing kids. And so if by like four, they've Eating all their snacks and they want a banana and dinner's still a couple hours away, I would be like, that's fine. So I just don't know that the, the whole allotment thing
0: works. I don't know. It's tricky. It's great for the easy access though. Yeah. And that has, has gotten better now that the kids are able to play outside again. There, there isn't that need for snack because it was so much about boredom. Yeah. Ugh, which is, yeah. you know, where we're all figuring it out before we get into the book. I'm curious, like, so We just relocated to Colorado, as I mentioned. And luckily the COVID rates are very, very low at where we are. I am enrolling our three-year-old into preschool. She starts next week. I have never been inside the building. I don't think I'll be allowed inside the building. Wow, yeah. What advice do you have for parents children transitioning back to school and especially for parents that have kids going to a new kindergarten or a new preschool where like we're so used to having to do all the parent me classes there's like usually this whole on-ramping process and now it's like you drop off your kid and you wear a mask and you leave yeah
1: You know, it is, it's, we're asking a lot of kids, but we're also asking a lot of parents. I mean, one of the things that I think we've, that has been missed a lot in the conversations around all of this is we keep forgetting to talk about grief. And I think that, um, you know, I have a senior this year and typically the seniors and what he saw his older brother do is they have a back to school um, senior dinner and all the seniors go over to the head of the school's house and they have dinner and they have all these rituals. Well, this year, it was a drive through where they handed him chicken skewers through the window and he came home and ate it. It was so, it was so not, you know, like yeah. they, the school's trying, they're doing their best. I'm totally mm-hmm. grateful, you know, and of they course. came and put a little sign in our front yard, like a senior lives here. You know, they're, I'm so appreciative that they're, they're really making the best of it. But thinking about people who in my community, when ki- when kids were graduating last spring, I haven't talked about this pub- publicly yet because I don't, you know, I don't want to make anyone upset. But there were some parents at a certain school that got really mad because their banners that were in their front yard that said, you know, "Congratulations, senior graduating that lives here" wasn't customized. And one of them got mad because there were these small little flamingos that were like put, that was really cute. Like California plastic flamingo with like a, here's a senior lives here. And there were parents that were so upset. Like the banner wasn't big enough. The school didn't do enough. They weren't customized and they're not as nice as the banners from that other school. And people were then getting mad at them for being upset about this flamingo situation. Mm -hmm. And I was like, everybody stop (laughs) for a minute, it's not about the effing flamingo. It's not, it's grief. And the parents, mm-hmm. you know, the kid is mis- missing this ritual that we've had forever ourselves with graduation and then the post graduation party and the, you know all of that. And the and the parents are missing that too. And so you getting to go in and tour your kid's preschool and and help prepare her and meet the teacher and do the onboarding, you're missing all of that. And so I think we need to first acknowledge that there might be some grief there. There might not be, but we might say. This is a loss in some form or fashion. And we have to remember, too, that the brain is an association machine. So any time, whether it's grief or anxiety or um, feeling untethered or whatever it is, that when we feel that, any time we've ever felt that or any memories connected to that feeling or those physical sensations in our bodies, those can all get activated, So it's almost like whatever we're feeling can get just dialed way up. And we don't even realize that it's stuff from the past that's also driving that up. But I think that's important for us to acknowledge. Now, in terms of what you can do, Um, One of my favorite strategies is from the whole brain child called name it to tame it. And I actually did this with my two youngest because I didn't think of it for my first but when I was writing (laughs) books I thought about this stuff a little bit more, but I made a book with my kids, and um, you can probably go on the website and steal photos off the website of what the classroom looks like or whatever, mm-hmm. or ask the teacher via email to snap a couple of shots and send them to you. And you could really just make a book. And so you say like, I, I did one for my son, JP, um, JP goes to school. That was the name of the title. I know I'm a writer, but I didn't spend to much time <laughs> getting creative with this one. Um, but basically when we name something, we talk about the facts We talk about how the kid might feel about it. And then we always give them a message or a strategy for resilience or a good, good ending kind of thing. So I basically said, JP will go to school. What will JP do when he goes to school? He'll be in the bike yard and we kind of, he'll wear a mask. You know, I would put those kinds of things. Um, And then I would say sometimes JP might miss mom and dad when he's at school. And then we did... um, You can do like ask your kid what's your favorite animal or what's your what's the bravest animal you know. And you can actually go on Etsy and order temporary tattoos of whatever that is, or with your initials or people probably even do your face. You could probably send a picture of your face. You could have your face tattooed. Yes. We did Dodgers because my kids were big. They loved the so my kids had temporary Dodgers tattoo. And so as part of the story, and in the book I said. If you're missing mom and dad, you can look at your Dodgers tattoo and know that mom and dad will be there soon and your teacher will always help you. So there was always like a, oh, okay, good. Mm. I'm going to be okay kind of thing. So walking through the facts, the feelings, and then a a strategy or taking a deep breath or, you know, um, pretending you're blowing out a candle, whatever thing you do with your kid already, um, could be a good thing too, that they know to do to calm themselves and feel safe and connected. So that's a really good thing to do. And then on my website and my blog, and it's also on Instagram, I posted it, I think yesterday. Um, I have a, like a seven minute video with that strategy and about five more for, to help kids with some anxiety or unknown untethering kind of feelings, um, and going back to school. But that's, that's one of the.
0: ones. I love the idea of the temporary tattoo. We, with our older daughter, would just use a Sharpie marker. Totally. But I think at this, at this stage, uh, we need to step up our game. Uh, I think temporary tattoos off Etsy are a fabulous idea. And going back to the flamingo thing for one second, it really makes me think about like what is underneath the pettiness, right? And that when people are acting out, for me not to take it at face value and to understand that there is a lot of grief under it. Yeah. So thank you for sharing it because I think that's helpful, especially when even going to the grocery store can be such a heated experience these days. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of mothers are carrying guilt about this spring. And if they go back and listen to our conversation about your book with Dan, yeah. the power of showing up, a lot of us felt like even though we were with our children 24 seven, we couldn't fully show up yeah. because one kid was on the computer and needed 70 different login codes every right. two minutes. And the toddler was running around in the background naked. I don't know, hypothetically Absolutely. <laughs> while trying to do our own work and also do the meals right. and, you know, clean all the groceries. You know, there were so many insane things happening at once. What do you say to that mom who is feeling immense guilt about not being able to be present for her child during this time or really step up for her kid when she is so concerned about, you know, keeping her career? Yeah. I think I want to say
1: you can totally let it go and forgive yourself. Absolutely. What we have been asked to do as parents is impossible, to be fully present to our kids and parent in ways that feel good to us and our kids and help develop the skills. You know, I'm thinking, Oh, I'm going to teach my kids like how to change the oil. Like I got um, Catherine Newman's awesome book, like how to be a person where there's all these yeah. great things like you want your kids to learn. And I was like, we're going to go through the, you mm-hmm. know, and no, we, we got a couple of them, but you know, we were just snacking. We were busy snacking. <laughs> but I think that, you know, what, what, I what I know, about how the brain works. And I talk a lot about kids also applies to us as adults. And here's what I often use as a frame is that when a kid is having big behaviors or they're emotionally melting down, they're having a hard time in some way. One of the things I always want to investigate with curiosity is what are the demands of the child's life or what's the demand of the environment and what is the child's capacity and how big is is there a gap between capacity and demand? And when there's a big gap between capacity and demand for kids, we see massive anxiety and acting out and shutting down and not learning and accessing content in the classroom. We see all these signs, which is why, you know, in No Drama Discipline in my whole discipline philosophy, I like I've always been saying, we have to start with curiosity because I really believe that most of the time when kids are acting out, they're saying, I need help with something. I haven't learned a skill yet or something's too hard for me. So instead of coming in with punishment, we need to come in with, support and help. And I think that's such a good framework for what was required of us as parents. The demands of our situation and human capacity were too far of a gap. So no one was doing a great job, really. So I think the other thing to remember, two things to remember, one is when we make ruptures with our kids, like when we don't feel good about an interaction or even a period of time we can always go back to our kids and say, you know, I was thinking about how I was kind of grumpy and impatient for a while during quarantine. And I wasn't as kind as I wish I had been. I wish I had played with you more. I wish I had been a little bit more patient and I want to have a do-over. Will you forgive me? And so you can always make a repair. So that's key. We should always. We can always make repairs. And that actually brings our children closer to us. It It, it creates intimacy and emotional connection. And then the other thing is to just say that, you know, we have to remember that moments matter, for sure moments matter, but really it's a collective of many, many experiences. And if we have a bad spring, so what? We've had a bad spring. And if we have a tough year, so what? We've had a tough year, but it's the collective of our relational experiences that are with our kids that has the impact on their brain. And so When we are able to be present and show up and do the four S's, helping them feel safe, seen, soothed, and secure, the key around that is that outcome we want is for their brains to be wired to know that if they truly have a need, we will show up for them. And I bet that if you really looked at your parenting and even the rough times, when your child really needed you, I bet you did show up. Um, you may not have shown up for every snack demand. And if they were having a tantrum and you were like, I can't handle this right now, you go deal with this on your own. That's okay. I think we just have to remember that your kid probably does know that if they need you, you'll show up. And that's what's key. So it's almost like my analogy is like, you know, when your kids are young and you're worried that they're not eating, like my kids are not eating. And the pediatrician says, don't count what they eat in a day, count what they eat in a week. That's kind of the analogy I'm saying, like, yes you know, we may have wished we had done better, um, but the capacity and demand situation, like that's not something we can control a lot right now. So be gentle with yourself. If you sit in shame and have a shame spiral around it, it actually can make you less patient and more vulnerable to continuing that behavior. So I truly would say like, talk to yourself, talk to your brain and be like, that was hard. I did the best I could. I will forgive myself. I know my kids will forgive me. I'm going to start today and do better as best I can today just let it go. I'll release it.
0: You know, speaking of releasing it, I'm thinking about a lot of families that are in New York who went through so much trauma this spring. And now it seems like, you know, the rates are much lower there. People are trying to get back to life, their lives. How do people unwind from that fight and flight, yeah. fight or flight? spring that they had. Is there anything that a parent can say to herself or himself to help release that? Because we've been in such a state of fear for so long, at least those of us. I mean, I'm speaking as someone who was in California all spring. I mean, it's been a hellscape.
1: I think first of all is to understand that when we feel that, that revved up kind of like trauma response, that threat response, that's, it's not pleasant, but it means that our brain and our nervous system is working the way it's supposed to. So when we, I, I, there's a word I love, it sounds so sciency, but I'm going to use it because I think it's such a good way to think about this. You know, language helps us think. Um, the word is um, Stephen Porges's. Um, it's called neuroception. And neuroception is not something you really think about. It's something that happens in your nervous system automatically that is It's job is to really determine whether there's something that something is safe or dangerous. So your neuroception detects threat all the time. And right now, when we've had all of this trauma and our kids have had a lot of um, secondhand screen time, meaning like you may be watching the news and things like that, and they're not really listening or they're not really watching, but some of that stuff's coming in, or they're overhearing adult conversations about how horrible things are, how frightening things are. So we're, we're getting a lot of that. We're getting messages of neuroception of danger and threat all the time. So yes, our nervous systems respond the way they're supposed to. And the way our, our stress system is set up though, is let's say you're crossing a street and a truck almost hits you and you're like, (gasps) and you have a massive neuroception of threat. Like that was dangerous. And then you cross the street and you're like, oh, that was a close call. And that was so frightening. And your heart's beating fast and your muscles are tense and you have a complete neurophysiological threat response. And then you recover from it and you move on. And then maybe you tell the story a couple of times and, and then you're more, a little more careful the next time you cross the street. What's happening <laughs> metaphorically is that trucks are coming constantly. We can't get to the mm-hmm. other side of the street. So yes, I think that's the place we start as we say, yes, my neuroception for danger has been revved up and we can mm-hmm. say nervous system brain, thank you for doing your job and things are safer now. So now we focus on safety-based messaging for ourselves and for our kids. Yes. Now we know how to be safer And um, I talk about this, I've been talking about this quite a bit because, you know, again, the brain's a neural association machine. So when we say it's dangerous to go to school, it's dangerous to, you know, see friends. If we keep saying that over and over and over, our brains, our kids' brains are going to associate those things with the world is dangerous. So what we want to do is make a tiny little shift in our language and say, we're taking a pause on seeing friends. We're taking a break on Mm -hmm. going to school so that we can be safer. And so we we love safety-based messaging instead of threat-based messaging so that your kids emerge not as the world is dangerous, but they emerge as my grown-up keeps me safe. And so if they're saying it's okay to go back to school, I might still feel a little nervous about it, but I can trust that I'm going to be safe. So I think doing that for ourselves too and doing kind of that self-talk and that safety Mm -hmm. messaging. And then there are things we can do to turn off the threat response. And I'll just mention a couple of them. We could spend an hour on this, but um, one of them is noticing our body. I noticed just even as I was talking, you were taking nice deep breaths and your exhale was a little bit longer than your inhale. I don't know if you noticed that but that is actually a wonderful way to release your nervous system's stress. So when you take a breath that is longer than your your inhale, your exhale is longer, um, it activates the parasympathetic branch of the nervous system, which is really like the breaks, the calming. It's like it turns our volume down in terms of that nervous system arousal. So the way we breathe, and then I got really anxious a couple of weeks ago when my son was getting ready to leave for college. And I, I was really like noticing my body. I was getting headaches because mm-hmm. I was really tense. I was like clenching my jaw and I was noticing my muscles were tight. I was just having a lot of headaches. And then once I could notice it, I was like, oh, my body's tense. And of course it's tense. And so just trying to do that self-talk that's kind. Mm-hmm. And then I could intentionally like you know get floppy with my posture and take deeper breaths so that's kind of more of a bottom up kind of using our body to do that and then name it to tame it that whole storytelling works for us it's journaling or talking to a friend or going to a therapist all of those things help us release some of that nervous system arousal and then of course sleep and exercise are obvious but
0: still worth mentioning because we're not always good at doing them Mm -hmm. One thing that's been really helping me with my neck tension, because it's where I hold a lot of my Mm -hmm. stress. Uh, My husband gave me for Christmas, a gua sha. (laughs) It's a facial stone that you're supposed to use to massage your face, but I use it on my neck down to my shoulder and then on the back of my neck. And it gets all those little knots out Oh, if you use it with facial oil and it is so helpful and it really does release. Yeah, And it's been really grounding and helpful for me. I also broke out in hives like a week ago when we got here. So it's funny because it's like, it's almost like I hit home base or like a place of safety. And then I like blew up in hives.
1: One other thing I meant to mention is predictability. The brain hates when the world is unpredictable and the world is pretty unpredictable right now. So we can create predictability at least, you know, I call it a false sense of like, I'll organize my drawers and my closet and my friends like, are, are you trying to have a false sense of control? And I was like, yep. And it's working for me, but creating rituals and routines. Like this morning was my first, my kid's first day of school. Um, they just started an hour ago and we went and took pictures wow. on the front porch, just like we always do. Now they were barefoot and weren't wearing backpacks, but you know, if you have rituals and routines. And you know, Sunday night is game night and you, you know, you can create some predictability even within an unpredictable world and the brain that really helps us create a a
0: neuroception of safety. Well, I want to say that your new book also creates a neuroception of safety because you have done so much legwork for new parents. And so we first describe the book and what parents can expect when they read it.
1: Oh, my gosh. I, you know, every time you have a a book, it's like having a baby. Like, you just get, you're just like, it's so exciting, right? Um, And this is my first solo book. I love writing with Dan. He and I will keep writing books together, I'm sure. Um, But this is my first solo book. And it's the book I needed when I was a new parent and nothing like it existed. So I decided to write it for other parents. So the bottom line for baby, it's an alphabetical book. It's straight to paperback. So it's like less expensive. And so you flip to, whatever the topic is you want to hear about. And I picked, it's a little over 60 topics, and they're the topics that you get the most competing information on. And that was my experience, like when I was a new mom or when I had to make a decision about my baby. And you have to make a million decisions that first year. And you're like, how am I supposed to make this decision? Like, what do I know, right? So for me, like I would read, I would read all the articles about, or the mom blogs and I would read all about it and I would talk to friends and then I would get unsolicited advice too. And then, and I'd be like, okay, that sounds good. And then I would read more and then it would totally contradict. And that made sense to me too. And so we had, I had like sometimes some analysis paralysis. Hmm. So what this book is, is it's 60 plus topics of the things we get the most competing advice about. And each section, each entry is laid out In three sections. So the first section is competing perspectives. So for instance, let me just flip to one here. Um, let's see, uh, pacifiers, right? So one perspective on pacifiers is you shouldn't give them to babies. It creates nipple
0: confusion. It's going to be a hard habit to break. You just shouldn't use them. My mother called a pass. She, my daughter had a pacifier and my mother called it obscene.
1: Yes. Okay. So I should, I could put some refer to it as obscene. Um, and then the other perspective is pacifiers are a great way for babies to self-soothe and they can be a great tool for parents to use whatever. Um, and so that's the perspective. It's just a couple of sentences with the two main arguments about the topic. Then there's a section called what the science says. And I have scoured the research, um, looking at the best studies. So I've thrown out the crappy ones and the most recent stuff. And so I give a summary in quick form. Of what does the science say about it? Including one really interesting thing for pacifiers is that for boys, but not for girls, when boys use pacifiers for a long time past their second or third year, they tend to have less ability to identify emotions. And some of the thinking behind that, there's just theory around that, but that when they're holding the pacifier in their mouth, they're not mimicking as many emotional expressions. And that even though that's the same for girls, that girls are often talked to more about emotions and feelings. And so that may be a buffer that changes that. So I just hit some interesting studies Mm -hmm. um, and then I give a bottom line. So the bottom line is for pacifiers, it's not a big deal for nipple confusion. Just wait about two weeks if you can. And then after that, Mm -hmm. go ahead and give them the pacifier if they like it and make sure that by the time they are two or three, you're not using the pacifier anymore. So I give a really clear bottom line when there is one. Other times I say, the science is clear on this. This is a value or either way is fine. Do what works best for your family. Mm-hmm. And then in about a third of the entries, I have a note, a personal note from me that either tells a story, like in that entry, I talk about how my son had a bye-bye passy party and how we did that and um, how we got rid of it and how he was like a passy hoarder. He would sleep with one in his mouth and one in each hand. And yeah. I don't know what I would have done without the pacifier. Mm-hmm. So anyway, it's what's what I love about it is Within a couple of minutes on any of these topics, a parent can get informed and make a decision based on science. And what I've done, I've worked really hard, Ellie, in every one of these entries, even on the most controversial ones like sleep training and things like that, Mm -hmm. for parents to feel empowered by the knowledge, but also feel empowered to trust their baby and to trust themselves and to know that. No matter what you decide about, there really are only a few things that are make and break in terms of these decisions. And when it's your first time through, you think it's the most crucial decision that will impact whether they live in a van down by the river or not, You you know, whether you give them a pacifier. But once you've had a couple of kids, you realize... Doesn't matter all, a lot, most of these, what you just, how you go probably doesn't matter that much.
0: Right, and PS, now a lot of us are really fantasizing about living in a van down by the river. Oh, absolutely. Like, Winnebago's, like it's like the van life has become very trendy in 2020. <laughs> the mark of
1: success now.
0: For me reading the book, I was most surprised about the section on DEET, which I think parents will find interesting because we're still in mosquito season. Yep. Oh. Um, and that it's, oh, okay to use DEET. I was shocked. And I, I was shocked too. I gave my mother so much trouble about DEET. I was like, I'm not putting this on my babies. like, I'm not spraying this cancer on (laughs) them. And then you broke it down and I was like, okay, well, well, that's good news. Less mosquito bites. What was the, was there anything that you researched that made you think differently than when you had raised your own children? Did you change your mind on anything?
1: Yeah. Um, I'll tell you, that was such an interesting, that's such an interesting question. I mean, there are a lot of surprises. There were a lot of surprises in the literature. Like, I didn't know. I'm such a um, high conscientious, uh, risk-averse person. I truly am. Um, It's just my personality. And so, like, I never drank one sip of wine when I was pregnant or breastfeeding. Um, And the research says it's okay to drink a little bit when you're breastfeeding. I didn't know that. So that could have been fun to know years ago. (laughs) I didn't know that. So that was a surprise. You know, I'll tell you, I'm going to be just really real here. The sleep training entry was the very hardest. And it was hard because I am absolutely committed to reporting what the science says as objectively as I possibly can. And I had pediatrician after pediatrician comb through these pages. And I have a lot of input from the experts in the field on these. Um, So I'm grateful for that. I feel really biased about sleep training. And that's what I write about in my personal note. I say, look, mm-hmm. I'm telling you what the research says, but here's what I think. And it's I talk about times where I decided where, when the way I did it, um, or the way I still would do it if I had a baby now is different from what the science said. So I'm really forthcoming about that. The sleep training one was really tricky because as a attachment researcher, not attachment parenting, but attachment mm-hmm. science, um, and as someone who studies the role of the parent in regulating states of stress for infants, I was very anti sleep training. But the research is very pro sleep training. And so that was a dilemma for me. And I really wanted parents whether they decided to do cry it out methods or not to not feel judged or bad and truly I really don't know that it makes that much of a difference whether parents do it or not depending on their child's temperament. So Mm-hmm. I think I got a little bit, I got less judgmental for sure on cry out methods. I still believe that when babies are left in high stress states for long periods of time, that is not good for them. And I would think of it almost like a surgery or a, a, a vaccine, like a shot that would be really painful, that it's incredibly stressful for the baby. And then the parent is really nurturing and attuned and all that all the rest of the time. And so the babies recover from it. So I don't know that it's, you know, it's something that should be absolutely avoided, but I, I really don't like the idea of leaving babies in high stress states for long periods of time. And for some babies, I guess my main kind of thing on it for everyone is if you have a baby that is fussing and just working it out and not in a really high stress state, I feel perfectly fine about that. But, um, like for my firstborn, if I had done a cry it out method, it would have definitely been a trauma for him. I mean, he was such a Mm. sensitive baby. I don't think my second and third babies, I don't think it would have been a big deal for them at all. I think they would have fussed and they would have been fine with it. Um, so I wish I had, I wish I had known a little bit more about this. I think I would have been willing to try more things in terms of sleep training and Mm. I would have been a lot less sleep deprived. Those were kind of some dark days when I was so sleep deprived.
0: Yeah. Yeah. that And, and I really appreciate that you share that in the book as well, because it is <clears throat> for my family, sleep training. Our first daughter was very easy. Yep. She was just down for it. Like yep. it wasn't a big deal at all. And we did the, like, you go back in the room yep. and you check in and then you leave and you, you know, that dance. And then with Eliza, who our three-year-old now, who's very, very sensitive. I got to the point where I need, we needed sleep. Yeah. As listeners know, my husband has rheumatoid arthritis and like a big flare up for yeah. his autoimmune disease is lack of sleep. I am a monster when I don't sleep. Yeah. So we got to the point where we decided to sleep train her. Um, we waited longer for her to do it. But the funny thing is I would walk in the room and it would escalate. Yeah. And so this thing that had worked for my first child totally backfired for our second child where coming in was not calming her. It was escalating it. And so I ended up doing, um, and I'm just sharing this for listeners to know that like, we're all figuring it out. And every way we do it, we think that there might be a different way or a better way, or there's always a little bit of guilt everywhere. I mean, that's just parenting. But I had to just not go in because that dance wasn't working. And then she didn't cry again. And after that first or second night, and I don't believe that she just gave up on us. Yeah, You know, like if you read, there's, you know, it is such a guilt-laden topic. Totally. But I don't think she gave up on us. And I think she got so much more sleep than she would have gotten waking us up every three hours for no reason. And we were not, we were much more nurturing has like grown ups with some sleep. Yeah. So I appreciated how in the book you break it down and you don't tap dance around vaccines and you don't, you know, these are very stressful decisions for parents to yeah. make about, you know, should you put the baby in the rocker? Is that dangerous? Like there's everything that we have been dealing with as a society for. This past year, and all of these strange decisions we have to make, and all of these, all this conflicting information. You know, one day with COVID, like, you know, you shouldn't use a gator to go running because that's actually going to spread more of the virus. And then they come back and say, actually, that study was wrong and it's totally fine to use a gator, or like, it is, it does help and it doesn't spread the virus more. Like, That is the whiplash that you can feel as a new parent. And so it is so reassuring to have this book and be like, okay, I'm going to get Tina's professional opinion. I'm going to get her personal opinion as a mother, but I'm also getting all of the research broken down for me and I'm getting the both sides. And it's, it's just really nice to be able to arm parents with the bullet points that they might need to stand up for what they're feeling inside. Because a lot of times you know as a parent yep. what is going to work for you, but it's still really hard if, if you have a mother-in-law or some anyone who's saying, oh, but it should be this way. It's just really nice to be like, Oh, wow. And and here's the, here's the other side of that. Right. You're like, okay, read the entry on germs and know that it's fine that I licked my baby's pacifier
1: clean because that's going to make her less likely to have asthma and allergies. So, you know, know, how crazy (laughs) is that? I loved that. Um, And Ellie, I loved what you said about like when you were sleep training and you went in and she would cry more like, I think that's the most important part of all of these decisions is really being attuned to your child. I mean, every child is different and every family is different. And my hope is that when, you know, you knew what she needed, you knew what was making things better or worse for, for her, and you were modulating her stress by not going in the room. And that's why there's complexity there. We can't say, yeah. like, you should go back in the room because then the baby will be less stressed. Well, no, you, you don't know that. Every baby's different. I think it's, I think what I hope that comes across in the book too is that, you know, there, there are lots of ways to be great parents. You know, there are lots of ways to love our children. People are so judgmental about people who don't breastfeed, um, or who, you know, but think about this. Like I have a friend who, and I breastfed for eons and I loved it and it worked for my family and I had the support to do it. Um, but a friend of mine was dying to breastfeed and she had so such low milk supply and she had worked with all these people to help her. And she spent so many hours trying to pump and increase her milk supply that she couldn't even really be present with her baby. And so Mm -hmm. she was a better parent for not breastfeeding truly. And I think that's what happens with sleep training too, is like, you know, I mean, the studies say that parents who sleep better have better, less conflictual marriages. And we know that conflict and fighting in front of our kids is not great for Mm -hmm. our kids. So sleep training might be, make you a better parent. And so we have to think about how every decision we make is not in a vacuum. We shouldn't follow all the science because some of the, the, and some of the recommendations are in conflict with each other, right? And so all of our decisions are a web, and they have different, you know, impacts in our families. So I also tell about a story in the book about how my best friend that I grew up with, and we even went to college together, and you know, she, we shared a wedding dress. Like we, you know, we were like wow. Wow, best friends. <laughs> you know, that's amazing. Yeah. And she lives in a different state, and um, and she and I had a due date within a week of each other with our first baby. <gasps> And not planned. And I was planning and she wasn't and it happened anyway. And she and I pretty much parented completely opposite. Um, She sleep trained. I didn't. I mean, pretty much every decision I made, she did. We did the opposite. And the one thing we both did is we loved the hell out of our kids. We did. We just Mm. gave them the four S's. You know, we loved our children deeply. And our kids are both now adults. Those firstborns are now adults. And her kid is awesome. And my kid is awesome. So I truly want parents to walk away feeling like, okay, now I've got the knowledge. I can do it. Whatever I decide is working for me. And that makes me a good parent because I'm being intentional no matter what I decide. And that most of the, the decisions I make in this book are not truly going to matter in the long run. What really matters mm-hmm. is the bottom. So I actually have a bottom line of the bottom line. Um, yes, that was actually a listener question. <laughs> What's the
0: bottom line
1: of the bottom line? She yeah, goes, I promise I'll read the book, but what's the bottom line yeah. of the bottom line? I have a very short conclusion because you know the book it doesn't have to be read cover to cover. You really can just turn to circumcision or you know discipline or daycare versus nanny or nanny versus you know
0: daytime. that was a fascinating section. As oh, well. I was
1: so I thought that was so interesting. I learned so much um, researching this book. But the bottom line of the bottom line is the message from the power showing up that what mm-hmm. your kids need most from you. Is for you to help them feel safe and seen and soothed um, and to show up for them. And I'll say one other thing that I think is crucial. What our kids need most from us is, you know, a happy parent as best we can be who delights in them. Not all Mm -hmm. the time, not all the time, not even close to all the time, but some of the time. you know, with all this um, stuff going on in the world, I, I posted something just a week or two ago and people really responded to it. And it was it was an idea from The Power of Showing Up, which is if you want to be the safe haven from the storm, mm-hmm. you cannot be the storm. And so I think a, one thing we have to put in our bottom line of our bottom line is to take care of ourselves. And I'm so bad at that. I really am. I'll just admit it. I am really bad at making sure I get enough sleep, you know, I've, I've done better and better over the years, but when my kids were little, Mm. I was like a walking, like sacrificial lamb constantly. I mean, I just did not take care of myself. And I had,
0: you were also getting a PhD, like you had so much going on. I still feel like I'm <laughs> from all of that.
1: Um, that was a very loaded. Like I had a lot going. On. I did. I had a lot. <laughs> I had a lot going on. I might need to go back to therapy to like process <laughs> I that time. But I, I, think the bottom line is the bottom line is unconditionally love your kids, show up for them when they need you the most, mm. and please take care of yourself because parents. I'm talking to you directly. You matter too. You do. You matter, and. um, our kids need healthy, strong, regulated parents as much as we can. We don't have to be perfect. Certainly, you know, in the power of showing up, we talk about, you can mess up all the time, just repair and move on, right? So the bottom line, of the bottom line is love and care and just all the things that we want to do most of the time as parents anyway. Where can our listeners find you? They can find me on my website, which is tinabrison.com, But the place I'm actually posting the most content right now, like I'm writing, I'm making lots of videos right now to support people and all of that. I'm posting all of that on Instagram. So my Instagram handle is Tina Payne
0: Bryson. I love it. And listeners, our Instagram handle is at Atomic Moms. You can also find our show notes at AtomicMoms.com on your favorite podcast app. Be sure to subscribe so you get our next episodes. And what else do I want to say? Oh, If you've been listening a long time and you enjoy the show, please leave a review. If you go to itunes.com backslash Atomic Moms, you can leave a quick, quick review. It really helps. First of all, I love reading them, but also because it really helps with our ranking so that new parents can find our podcast. All right, everybody, until next week trust in your goodness, live out your greatness, rock on Atomic bombs. And thank you so much, Dr. Tina Payne Bryson. Thank you.